Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't think anything I'm going to be saying is going to be like massively surprising to <laughs> a bunch of people. So. Um, <laughs> well, with that, I would introduce the owner-operator of Neck of the Woods, Jonah Merchant. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. been been on the cast for a long time. A long time. Yeah, it has, right, since oh. uh, you know we connected on Twitter many moons ago. Which I yeah. think our initial Twitter conversation was about venue funding. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and you threatened, actually way back then, you said, hey, we should get you on the show and actually... <laughs> Here we are, 2022, we've made it. It is a threat. Yeah. It's a definite threat. Yep. I wanted to first and foremost get you on the show because I just wanted to hear from you in person what it's like running a music venue in Auckland right now. (laughs) <laughs> and and what your experiences are and how you feel for like from, from the horse's mouth because like mm. we, we have all these people talking about it and you are open on Twitter with your reactions to developments but it's it's a whole other thing to kind of talk about your your actual personal experience of being in your position and how it feels in the moment. So that's yeah. kind of how I wanted to start. Um, yeah, that's a big question in a lot of ways, actually. I mean, well, we've got a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the, you know, actually, I was thinking about this before I came on, and I was like, well, I don't want this to turn into the, because the background for us right now is obviously probably one of the most challenging times to be a, a music venue owner, I think, in New Zealand, probably for, yeah. I don't know, maybe decades, I guess. But um, so there's a lot of, uh, and COVID is obviously the big uh, factor behind all of that. But um, it's interesting one. I didn't want to come on here and and turn it into this uh, horrible, depressing kind of uh, state of the nation about um, where uh, we're at as venue owners and operators and what's happening with the industry and the scene and the challenges we're facing. And... uh, but you can't kind of duck that either. You have to, that, that is a very big piece of where we're at at the moment. And there's silver linings around a lot of it too. There's a lot of, you know, the pandemic has obviously challenged all of us in the sector in a way like probably none of us anticipated, mm. you know, back in those rosy days of 2018 when we had no idea that this thing called COVID was going to be, you know, barreling down the, the highway at us. And but it hasn't all been bad and there's some really positive stuff in there and you know I'm going to make sure I talk about that today as well but I think where we're at right now is it's pretty it is pretty tough tougher than at any other point in the pandemic so far and there has been quite a lot of commentary about why why that is and and what's happening but I think where we're at is uh, with with music venues is we're kind of steering down the barrel of come through over two years of the pandemic now all of the way through the pandemic there's been repeat shocks for us as an industry around lockdowns and um, you know public health restrictions on gigs and performing and live events and all of it you know very necessary and absolutely I'm fully supportive of the government in terms of the measures and the steps they've taken over over that time period to keep everybody safe and I think you know when it comes down to it you can kind of criticise the government um, for for some things but I feel like I'm pretty happy to be living in New Zealand and that you know we have you know navigated the pandemic as well as we have Um, but all that to one side it's still been an extremely challenging time for us and right up until this latest point where we've gone into uh, red um, you know the red traffic light setting again because of Omicron right up until that point we've had the 
a, a pretty good safety net for us as, as an industry. It hasn't been a perfect one. Um, you know, the wage subsidy and the resurgence payment schemes and these various mechanisms that have been in, in place and, um, you know, the, uh, the funding that was administered by the New Zealand Music Commission for the Venue Infrastructure Fund, all of these things in combination have actually helped us really navigate a, 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 an incredibly challenging time. And it hasn't been great for us, even with all of that funding support. Um, you know, we've been able to protect people's jobs and keep our staff employed. Um, we've been able to keep ourselves operating and then being in a position to reopen once restrictions were, were eased. <coughs> but the reality is, you know, um, and I think I speak for nearly every um, venue owner probably in New Zealand or particularly in Auckland where we've had the most impact, um, you know, we're, we're in the hole financially, you know, and and we know we're, we're not the only sector like that, you know, tourism, hospo, there's a million stories out there of businesses that are really, you know, burned through savings, burned through cash, even with the funding support that we've had um, from the government throughout the pandemic. But the difference now, facing sort of this Omicron surge, which is, you know, on the cusp of hitting us, we've got record cases again today, so it feels like it's it's been kind of hanging over us like this little tidal wave that we're just waiting to break over New Zealand. Mm. It hasn't quite broken over us yet, but it feels like it's going to be coming soon. Um, yeah, the big challenge now is we don't have that safety net anymore. We don't have the wage subsidy. We don't have resurgence payments. All of that was discontinued with the um, introduction of the traffic light system and then what's happened is the government has flipped that around and said okay well we will do some targeted funding support but we're going to do it through some very specific schemes you know we're going to administer it mainly through the Ministry of um, Culture and Heritage and it's things like this uh, event support scheme um, that was introduced uh, a little while back for um, for the smaller end of the um, live event spectrum and uh, they've got an emergency relief fund um, for COVID for organisations, um, you know, and um, arts practitioners who are right up against it. And you know, they've indicated that's something that music venues can potentially apply for as well. Mm. But all of those schemes, though, even though they're well intended, they've, they've still got a lot of challenges around how they're um, administered. The, um, the ministry's doing a great do job of administering it, but it doesn't get money out to people fast. Um, events. Uh, organisers and promoters have to apply for and register their events on the scheme. Uh, has to be accepted and processed. Then that money has to be paid out to them, and then eventually that will trickle through, hopefully, to um, venues or to uh, any of the contractors who would normally be involved. You know, sound engineers and AV and all of the various roles that come you know come together with making events happen. Mm. Um, and that's 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 tough, right, for us all because as venues we uh, we've pretty much exhausted all of our financial reserves over the last two years. And some, you know, mm. we've gone and we haven't just exhausted financial reserves, we've gone into debt. You know, we've we owe the government money because we took the cash flow loans out um, that they administered um, for small business, mm. or we've, you know, we've just exhausted, tapped all the options. And so the whole industry is actually really fragile right now, probably more fragile now than it's ever been. And yet we've got these support schemes in place that are actually harder to access and unlock and get money through to where it's kind of needed fast enough because there just isn't this um, we don't have this runway anymore that, that, we, um, that we had previously and there's been a lot of kind of commentary f from people saying well you know you can still open that you know and actually Grant Robertson said this a lot actually you know, you know most businesses can trade at red you know even though you've got restrictions around you know capacity and seated and separated and all of this kind of stuff but 
that's really tough. That's tough for a music venue, you, you know, where, you know, for Neck of the Woods, we, we, we do do live music, but we do a lot of electronic music as well. Mm. And, you know, how many people want to go to a drum and bass gig and sit around at a table and um, be seated and separated? And so there's a, there are some um, types of gigs that can go ahead and do okay at, at, at Red, even with the capacity limits and other restrictions, but... It's actually really tough across the spectrum of all of the events that we try to run in the, in the music space. It's really challenging. Hard to make them work commercially, hard to run them in a way that people actually want to come and come to them, hard to run them in a way that uh, events promoters and artists actually want to even put on the gigs in the first place because that's not the experience they want to give to people who are mm. coming to these shows. Um, yeah, so there's real challenges in there. And, of course, we have all of our fixed costs continue to, you know, we have... Uh, you know, as a venue, right, we have a commercial rent that we've got to pay to our landlord and most of the um, commercial rent relief that we got from landlords during COVID has is, is, is ended once we moved to the traffic light system because landlords see the message from the government that says, hey, you can all operate normally again now, even, you know. Well, well what was the quote? like, for, for most New Zealanders, it'll be life as normal. Yeah. Wasn't that the quote? Yeah, and, and, and it is for a, to a, to a quite a big extent you know I'm, I'm not saying that that message is 100% wrong but I think there's a there's a there's kind of finer aspects to it that I don't think the government has 100% appreciated probably because you know a lot of the policy setters even though they're supportive of the sector don't necessarily have the understanding or knowledge because they're maybe not going to gigs they don't necessarily click that hey some gigs need to be standing, right? And, you know, certain types of gigs and certain types of music you, you want to go and listen to, you, you don't want to be sitting at a table and um, yeah. you know, treated like a kind of a hospitality operation. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's that finer nuance, I think, that hasn't necessarily been appreciated. And I think there's a really strong groundswell of people really jumping on this quickly in terms of getting messaging out. You know, it was, um, as soon as we went into red, I feel like the the music sector really quickly turned around and said, hey, this is not going to work, you know, we've mm. got to do something here, please pay attention, <laughs> you know. Yeah, totally. Um, from the government side, and I think the government, to its credit, is, is trying to is trying to be flexible and adapt, but it's just, you know, it's hard, right? We don't have a, we don't have a runway in time, and, you know, the wheels of government turn a lot faster than they ever have, probably, um, but they're still quite slow, mm. and... And there's checks and balances that the government have to have in place too. I, you, know, you appreciate like it's taxpayers' dollars that they are using, and they have to have, you know, a res there's a responsibility. To it's going to sure. be bureaucratic. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I mean, I mean, maybe there's possibly better mechanisms that the that the government could use. I, you know, I, I think a targeted wage subsidy would really help keep the industry afloat. Um, you know, and you could have a um, some pretty good checks on that you know they've already had this uh and a lot of these these mechanisms are already proven actually you know they've already it's not like they haven't had a precedent so the wage subsidy was administered but you had to prove you know he had to state i've had a drop as a business we've had a drop of revenue of i think it was either 30 or 40 percent or whatever it was um and you had to you know um signed to that and then of course if you got audited and that wasn't the case <laughs> then they, you'd be forced to pay it back yeah right and the government could still do something like that for affected sectors now, I think, and maybe they make that percentages a little bit higher in this instance, and they say, is it, you know, are you 60% of your revenue has been lost or something because mm. of being stuck at red, and maybe that can be make it a little bit more 
focused into a specific sector like the live music and events scene. Um, and that would be easier to process and administer and then the money would get to individuals faster and you know we'd be looking after our staff and one of the big problems for us as a music venue actually is that you know we have a big pool of casual staff and they're the first people to, to get cut when we've got no income mm. you know you you're retrenching right down to just your pool of essential staff that you're trying to keep on and, and the pool of casual people who, who generally do work for you you know they're the first ones who get their hours cut or you just say hey we, we can't afford to pay you because we've got no income where the doors are shut mm. um so there's a real knock-on effect, I think, with some of the policy decisions around the traffic light system. Um, yeah, but hopefully, hopefully it's been heard. The and are, are you yeah. are you open at all at the moment? Are you completely door shut? Are you doing some events? Are you open for drinks, or is it how's how what what are you doing right now? Uh, well, we've had the doors the doors are shut at the moment. Yeah. Um, we're looking at different options around events that we can run, and we, we are looking at doing, uh, considering whether we can do some seated events uh, in the right format. Um, you know, there's, we're we're interested in understanding whether um, you know controlled access gatherings, you know, private private gatherings can be be held in a in a venue like us. Um, there's a little bit of scope in the, in the framework rules around that, but it's a bit of a grey area, and mm. and I think. Um, you know, speaking uh, mainly for myself, but I have had other conversations with other venue owners where we've talked about this kind of thing. You know, we we would we would like to, especially if we don't have any financial support coming through for this for venues. Yeah, you know, we're going to have to push quite hard on on uh, you know how far we can we can go on the framework. Yeah, but at the same time, um, and that's just purely from a financial trying to keep the doors open and the lights on and the business still surviving but at the same time you know we want to be responsible um, members of the community in terms of you know we don't want to be adding to the public health risk around um, COVID or Omicron we're not you know we, we don't want I don't think anyone wants to be a, a venue that's a super spreader event or mm. that's um, you know and, and you certainly don't want to see uh, and I think for the smaller music venues, like we're very community centric, right? Because you know we we definitely uh, invested in and know um, the people who come to our gigs and are part of our scene well. And you, you want to look after them. You want to keep them safe. You want to keep your team safe. Um, you know, and you want to navigate that. So there's this balancing act between trying to mm. figure out what's the right. How do we how do we navigate this in the absence of any really clear indication from government that they understand the challenges and the plight we're kind of facing yeah we get a lot of people within the music industry who kind of get it straight away and they're like yeah totally get it this is like really challenging for everyone but not sure that that has we don't 100 percent see that messaging getting reflected from government itself where the actual budget decisions are made <laughs> around where financial support can be allocated and how that might be farmed out so now yeah apparently Auckland is a UNESCO city oh, yeah. of music, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Where have you had any? <laughs> do you have any sense of support from the Auckland Council to do with saving apparently what is uh, the musical institutions of their UNESCO city of music? Um, not specifically with respect to. COVID mm. um, and the pandemic um, it, it's a little bit of a tricky one that one because um, 
if you sort of dial the clock back to just before the pandemic started, um, the City of Music thing was actually starting to be a little bit of a catalyst for um, local government and some of the other industry bodies to to really start coming together around actually recognising that music venues had this cultural um, value mm. to, to a city, you know, and to, and to society and that we should kind of treat them the way we treat other cultural institutions like, I don't know, museums or, you know, art galleries or something and actually try and protect and support and nourish nourish them, especially mm. at the grassroots end of the spectrum. Um, and you can kind of be critical of that city of music um, designation if you want, because it kind of felt like, and probably at the time it all happened, yeah, there's definitely a, there was definitely mutterings from people saying, "Well, you know, Auckland's not really a city of music, right? We don't have any support for the mm. for the music scene." But um, and I think that's pretty valid. But I think um, and Mark Roach, who's been one of the, the drivers behind this um, city of music initiative, he's you know from the recorded music um, side of things, he he's been a really good advocate for kind of pushing this thing about saying, "Hey, actually, we." We have got a reason to put ourselves forward as being a city of music, and now the 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 sort of the onus is on us to actually prove that we're deserving of that title. And this should be a reason for us all to be starting to get organised right to justify the fact, you know, and actually show that we um, are doing something meaningful in terms of mm. looking after our, our music scene. And so that all started to get a little bit of traction. Um, it feels like a long time ago now. When you <laughs> yeah. said like uh, sort of that 2018, 2019 period, but then very quickly it just got steamrolled by COVID kind of coming through. And now we're in this sort of space where there's quite, you know, Mark, uh, in, in in terms of the city of music stuff, there's a lot of advocacy still happening and a lot of support from that and lobbying of um, council and everybody else to, to be supportive of it. But it sort of is lost a little bit right now in the noise of, you know, whatever shockwave, the pan- latest shockwave the pandemic has delivered, you know, mm. versus Delta and then it's Omicron and, you know, it might be some other variant, you never know right where we're, where we're heading. But, um, and so that tends to just overwhelm everything and then all of a sudden it's about central government, you know, and what's the national response to how we're doing stuff. And so the local city council perspectives take a back seat because they're looking to the central government to kind of look after the pandemic response and recovery so kind of gets lost in the noise a little bit I think at the moment um, that's probably one of the big you know yeah I feel that's set us back a little bit I think with that whole city of music thing the mm. pandemic has really set us back a few years probably um, there's been positives though because I think the other flip side of that coin is that everyone recognises a lot more in terms of general public perception that hey, we need to give a shit about music venues and the music industry and the music scene and our local artists and how we support creatives and, you know, recognising that, hey, the city or, you know, our lives will be a lot worse off in terms of quality of life if we don't have that aspect of stuff around when we come out of the pandemic and if all the venues in Auckland are closed doors or, you know, artists have had to give up their their passion and kind of go uh, shill some office job somewhere because that's the only way that they can keep themselves afloat and then they never come back to mm. to the creative side again as a result and that's a huge loss for us all collectively as a as a society right yeah think, do, you, do yeah. you feel that's what we're looking at now already or do you think that 
like in terms of scenes and what we're going to have remaining once we come back? Do you think? Do you do you have any sense of it's all kind of still holding in there, or do you have a sense that it's something new and different is going to be on the other side, mostly? Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of. I like to feel like I'm a glass half full kind of person, cool. and yeah, and. It's a tough one. I, yeah, I don't know. I, probably if you asked me three months ago, I'd be a lot more optimistic yeah. about about the situation because I felt like even though we had had all these challenges through the pandemic, the government had really moved quickly to put these support frameworks in place for everyone with the wage subsidy and everything else. And they're not perfect and definitely everyone was hurting financially and we were, you know, by no means coming out of this kind of, you know, we were all battered and bruised by the whole thing, but it felt like we could get through it. Mm. Um, now I'm a, I'm a bit more nervous about it, to be honest. Yeah, a little bit more nervous. Um, I think there's still a lot to be optimistic about. I think there's a lot of um, goodwill amongst the industry. I think there's a lot of coming together of different players in the, in the scene to lobby and to advocate and to try and protect what we've all created together. Um, and I think that's been one of the biggest positives out of the whole thing is that, you know, we're, we've all realised we're in the same boat and we've got to all work together to protect not just the, mm. our own businesses or our own music and scenes that we've we, we've been a part of, but, like, to look after everybody. Um, yeah, so it's kind of brought, it's brought a bit of solidarity. Yeah, solidarity is a really... I mean, Save Our Venues is a really good example of that, right? That You know, that brought all these people together from across the scene um, and we've all, you know, like all the venue, you know, venue owners and everybody, we've all stayed in touch and we've kind of um, realised actually we all share very similar, you know, because prior to the pandemic we all were just not doing our own thing but we're sort of focused on our own mm. scenes or our own particular interests or whatever we were, you know, Whammy as an example has always, you know, been such a um, dominant force and sort of... Um, supporting and developing the indie, mu indie music scene. We've done a lot more in the electronic music space and so we didn't always kind of have a lot to do with each other, mm. although we obviously knew of and liked what the other um, venues are doing. But but now when we, you know, we, we have a lot more to do with each, each other, you know, Tom and Lulu and, and I, we all talk a lot. We're all part of the Save Our Venues group. We connect often to kind of share learnings and, and support each other through the ch challenges of the pandemic. And that feels like it's been a really important output of, of, of like something that's really positive that's come out mm. of the pandemic and we're much more about a unified voice that supports each other and the industry and the scene and and i think that that could be a really powerful thing as we go forward and we want to make sure we don't lose that and we kind of want to harness that but we've got to get through it first we, <laughs> yeah. we're still going to be yeah, <laughs> doesn't help if we're all closed <laughs> um and so with neck of the woods like you said the scene is more electronic yeah i'd say mm. also like quite um, a lot of hip hop as well on the fringes, like um, you know, I've seen Deirdre play there and yeah, um, historically, yeah, Masbo yeah. and yep. and I think Injury Reserve. Yep, yep, that's what we. Great show. Has it? Has it? What was it? Uh, what was the idea to be electronic focused from the start? Did, has this kind of just happened? Like, what's the story with the kind of scene that developed at Nick of the Woods? Yeah. Um, how to tell that story? Uh, that's a, that's um, yeah. So I well I'm 
how to yeah how to get, start this one. So I um, we kind of fell into um, running a music venue in a sort of an accidental right way. Um, I uh, we 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 had the the lease on the neck of the woods spa- uh, space we've had for quite a long time actually even before um, we opened neck of the woods and before that I, I had a, a a co-working business called Biz Dojo um, which used to operate out of Iron Bank on um, so directly across the road from mm. neck of the woods and. We had taken that basement space where Neck of the Woods is now and actually opened a maker space years ago. Oh, wow. And um, we had this idea of it kind of being this bridge between the way we would kind of run our two. We have a co-working space across the road, which is all about digital creatives, and then we would have this basement space, which was going to be about makers and photographers and artists and people who were kind of getting their hands dirty. And um, we ran that space for a while, but it was actually quite hard to get the commercial model to work really well. And we just, you know, we had a great community that we built around it, but it was just really challenging financially. And we were probably a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of what we thought we could do and what the market was ready for here in New Zealand and, mm. and everything else. And so kind of what, what happened over that time was we ended up, um, we were often getting the space was getting booked for gigs because people were looking for a space that was a little bit different to the mm. usual yeah, um, places around town, and so they'd say, "Hey, I want to, I want to put on a gig here." Can I put a gig on, please? Yeah, yeah, and I'm gonna, uh, you know, and we had, you know, we had a few fashion shows, and then we ended up having a lot of dance parties down there, a lot of, a lot of gigs getting booked, and so um, when we were sitting down as a crew, and we we're like, "What should we do with this space?" Because you know, the makerspace idea wasn't really going anywhere, and um, we were all passionate about music, and we were like, "You know what? Maybe we should actually." turn this into a bit <laughs> of a music a music venue we kind of and it's the classic thing right we didn't really know what we were getting yeah into. and no one had run a music venue before uh well i definitely hadn't yeah and, but we had a um we, we at least had the smarts to say hey we should talk to some people right. who've actually done <laughs> some stuff before so we got uh we spoke to josh moore who uh of rakino's um, f- um days as well uh, Rory Hattrick, who was um, running Cassette uh, 9 as well at the time. And, and we came together as a bit of a crew and we thought we'd do a kind of a pop-up music venue. We thought we'd, mm-hmm. we'd do something that we might run for like 12 or 18 months yeah. out of the basement and just put on some cool gigs and, and just see where it went and just, you know, have a run and then we'll close it after a year or so. Um, and... It kind of ended up just getting a bit of a life of its own, and then we kind of got sucked into it a little bit, you know. Because <laughs> yeah. you, you get, especially when it's your it's something you, you have a passion for, you know, um, and the whole creative side and being able to support the music scene, and and then um, for for Josh and um, myself especially, we used to um, uh, talk a lot about uh, Calibre back in the day. You know, um, before uh, became Whammy. You know, the old uh, legendary oh, night. No, I don't. Oh, okay. I was, this is a bit before my time. Yeah, it? yeah. So uh, way back before Whammy was Whammy, it was um, Calibre was this uh, defining, um, you know, house uh, nightclub that was running for quite a few years, sort of in the late nineties, early two thousands. Oh yeah. And that was basically where Josh and I kind of <laughs> lived in our formative years. Was like. Um, you know, we were at Calibre every every weekend, and right. and we uh, always re- used it as our reference point when we were talking about Neck of the Woods because we were like, you know, we had this ambition to have a music venue that would have an impact on the people that went to it in the same way that Calibre had had this impact on us. So all of our <laughs> 
most amazing music experiences would have were down at Calibre at four in the morning listening to Sawani or whoever on DJing at the time and um, yeah we met uh, all of our friends that we're still friends with today we met through the music scene there and through being connected through that whole community that sprung up around Calibre at the time and and we were just like man I would love to have that be something similar that we could kind of speak about with you know and, and have that be the same ex- sort of experience for kind of our children as we had uh, had ourselves and that we th- thought that would be a pretty cool thing to do and mm. so neck of the woods sort of ended up evolving from there actually right. and so and one but one of the things for us when we when we started it is we didn't want it to be um we didn't want to limit ourselves with a really specific genre of music or type of music that we were wanting to support we thought that for a sort of a slightly larger it's a slightly larger music venue in that it's you know got a capacity of about 350 um, right and we've thought we didn't want it just to be focused on you know for example you know drum and bass or hip-hop or uh, or you know we didn't want to be another um, live music venue that is was running up against something like whammy which is you know just literally next door so it was about what can we do that's going to add diversity and kind of uh, have a really broad um, mandate around the types of music we can have down there and what are the you know the communities and and types of music we can support and how can we do it in a way that it has this really authentic kind of feel to it as a as a music menu that people can then hopefully in 10 or 20 years talk about and say yeah you remember Nick of the Woods that was you know, mm. maybe it'll still be open who knows but yeah. you know it's that kind of thing and and places like Whammy have had that right Whammy's got this pedigree of you know it's been around for a long time now and has and has had generations of bands kind mm. of come through and and have their first gig there and then go through and mature and go on to bigger and better things and and the same with people who go to gigs right they have gone to gigs at whammy over over the years and kind of grown up and evolved <laughs> and you know moved through their adult life of whammy we kind of wanted to do something similar and that's been our ambition actually as we've gone forward and was there like a certain artist or group of artists or you know, scene and of itself that happened maybe one night or over some time and that you were like, oh, wow, it's happening. Like, this is really cool. Like, well, was there a moment like that or just kind of like built up over time and you're like, wow, it's just, it's kind of happening? Um, it's a little bit of building up over time, mm. but also, I mean, there's always specific gigs, right, that you just, they uh, blow your mind when you have a, um, a night down there and like, wow, that thing re- it really pops down there. But I think if you're talking about a sort of specific, you know, scene or whatever, I mean, we've always, you know, it wasn't a deliberate thing from us, but we've been a, we've ended up being quite a good home for the drum and bass community in, in Auckland as well. And that's been a really strong part of our support uh, as a venue over over the last few years. You know, mm. um, and that's, you know, and drum and, drum and bass heads in, in New Zealand are right, pretty passionate as well. <laughs> and, um, yeah, right. Uh, and they, you know, they are really proactive in in the scene in terms of supporting artists and supporting venues and getting them behind gigs and and so we saw a lot of that happen with Nick of the Woods and we just have always tried to be um, as open and supportive of any kind of promoter or gig or artist coming through and just give them, you know, all a hopefully a consistently good experience and vibe. And try and be this kind of open and welcoming community, 
uh, have that ethos about how we operate, and um, that's really resonated with the drum and bass scene. Mm. But equally, you know, we've had we've had gigs and um, you know promoters and artists all across the spectrum have been really good, and so we've been. Yeah, we've been very, very fortunate, and it's always you're always working on it. Always got more yeah. to improve. You, you know, it's definitely a. I don't think you can ever <coughs> take anything for granted as a venue. You've always got to be kind of trying to stay on top of your game, make sure the experience is good. Um, always, um, yeah, just don't take yourself for granted. Yeah, because and it can be, and you've always got to try to look after you, the community of people who come to come to your space because it's a fragile thing, right? It's hard to build that trust um, with a community but it, equally it's really easy to burn it if you do yeah do you have wrong, so. do you have like any tips for say like uh, people who are putting on gigs or trying to make the experience because I, I talk to a lot of bands and a lot of events people who are who know the importance of trying to make their gigs like an experience in a way or that people feel good and that they're there at the time. But because it's hard to put on as a band, like you're not, you're only playing a gig every, you know, couple of months or every three months or whatever. You don't get heaps of practice at it. Whereas like for yourself, like running a venue and constantly thinking about that, Mm. I'm sure you've picked up a few like good ideas on what needs to be in place to ensure that people coming through the door are having a good time at the gig or, or at least noticed um, uh, like things in common that yeah. the really good gigs are. Do you, wh- wh- what would you recommend? What, what have you noticed over your years? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely not a science, you know, it's more <laughs> dark art than science. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's not a, there's no sort of um, hard and fast um, rule on it, but it's kind of like anything, right? You... Um, uh, sorry when I say kind of like anything but it's sort of it's this idea of um, you always got to treat people the way you kind of want to you'd want to be treated right yeah. and it's um, often I think with uh, promoters and um, people who want to put on events you can kind of get fixated on stuff which is important but not necessarily um, always what your your punters are going to remember when they come to one of your events so uh, often, you know, people fixate on production and what's the lighting going to be like, what's the sound system going to be like, and you know, all the lineup and the, all of those elements, which are really important, right? They're, you know, they're the fundamentals to making sure that you have a great night, as you want those all to line up correctly for what you're putting on. But it's also uh, it's all the little things, it's all the little interactions, and just always thinking about, you know, what is the experience that people are going to want to want to have when they come down here they want to come down to a gig and feel like uh, it's welcoming and it's inviting and it's inclusive and mm. you're safe and you know you're being looked after and it doesn't matter what whether you're minority or, or, or where you what your background is you know that and so it's just, it's things like you know how do your security kind of uh interact with people when they come through the, yeah. through the front door how's um, yeah, you do, uh, whoever's working the door, um, the bar staff. Yeah, it's, right. Um, how you treat the artists when they come into the green room. It's um, you know how does your sound guy um, interact with someone at sound check, and so all of these elements. Or how does and for us, you know, we have um, you know we do quite a lot on social media. So it's like you know whoever's looking after your social media, how are they interacting with people and engaging with people? Who you know, so all of these little elements each on their own are not necessarily a deal breaker in terms of the overall way an event's going to go. But if you can 
get them all right and have them kind of front of mind and just think of them all as the opportunities to really kind of mm. make the experience a great one for the people who are coming to the shows. Um, that's really how the most the most successful gigs are the ones that are like that, that have really got, you know, they're paying attention to all the small details. Mm. You know. And that can, can be quite hard, right? It's not a, that stuff is not easy. And even when you're focused on it, you can still not get it right 100% of the time. And that's why it's always, for us as a venue as well, we're always always seem to have this long list of things that we want to do better or improve. We're always trying to, you know, we can do better on that. We can do better on this. We can right. do better on that. Yeah. 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 Um, I've always had this thing about bars being venues or like the fact that uh, with with music and alcohol being so entwined. Oh, I hate that. I you hate do? It. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, actually this is a, this is a really, um, so you talk about, um, you know, funding support for venues like over COVID. So I just mm. going back around in a circle. But, you know, one of the biggest challenges for funding of venues is that our main revenue sources uh, in the current business models that um, venues have to operate under is that, you know, we make most of our money through um, turnover over the bar. Yeah. You know, that's and that's a really unfortunate association to have to have is that you are tied and you don't want to make, decisions around what gigs you book based on the fact that you think a particular gig is going to um, do a bigger turnover on the bar than another one. You want to be able to make a choice around what gigs you book because you're like, that is going to be a great gig and the music is awesome or this mm. is going to be something that will be really great to promote because it's a you know underrepresented piece of the music spectrum and then we need to you know highlight. You, know, you want to make decisions around music programming and as a venue for the right reasons, not because you feel like you have to do something because it's going to bring enough money across the bar that you can cover all your overheads and stuff. And that's a really, it's a really tricky balancing act for a venue, right? And it all, you know, nearly all venues have that problem is that you, you have to kind of balance the. Yeah, have you seen any other business models for music venues that free themselves from from that basic setup? Well, you only really free yourself from it at the moment if you are actually a venue who's putting on your own events. And selling tickets. Oh, right. Well. Like you're the yeah. event promoter as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, that's still there's a limit to that too, right? Because you don't want to price gigs out of people's reach, mm. so you can't factor in all of your costs as a venue into the ticket price. So you got to balance that with, hey, we want to try and get some revenue across the bar, you know, as well. It's a really, um, it's a it's a tricky balancing act. I think that's the. The number one thing I think that longer term, and this is what we talked about with the City of Music guys a while ago, actually right. was you know, if the government really, or, or government or the City of Music or the council or anyone who's really interested in the value of music venues and the music scene as, as a part of like the cultural whatever, you know, fabric of a city or something, you kind of want to give them a, and a support them in a way that they're not always having to be completely dependent on selling booze to people to to survive. Especially when the case could be made that there are certain institutions like the police and parts of local government that would probably enjoy the idea of less drunk people or like less effects from alcohol less yeah. potential effects from alcohol in nightlife yeah. you know like it could be like well 
you know, you could lessen that problem by supporting us so we didn't have, like, so I, I don't know. You'd still be selling alcohol and people would still be able to drink it, but I guess... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not like, yeah. you, don't get me wrong, like, I'm not saying that we shouldn't sell alcohol because no. I think, you know... I mean, you want to have people, people like have, being, have drinking while they're at a gig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're drinking while we do this podcast right now because yeah, it's enjoyable. And it's... Um, and the, and it's all just about you know people need to uh, do that respond you know responsibly and you know in a way that doesn't kind of create too much havoc. But um, yeah, so I'm definitely not saying that you wouldn't have alcohol at a at a venue, but making it the primary source of income mm. for a venue is a really tricky one. I mean, probably yeah, I, I have um, put aside sort of the funding support that we've had from government over COVID, but you'd have to say like ninety percent of the income for Nicola Woods is from bar sales. You know, and maybe ten percent is probably venue hire fees and, and other stuff that we you know we charge promoters who put put it gigs on at the, yeah, right. the space. But and th- and that's a necessary kind of balance at the moment because you don't want to price promoters out of the market, right? You want to be able to ha- have people ha- have the venue be accessible to put on gigs, right? You don't want to have it so expensive that people are like, man, I can't put a gig yeah. on here. It's like too hard. It's, I'm not going to be able to make it work. Yeah, totally. Mm. Yeah, it's and it it creates this problem of like like we we're talking about experience at shows and people just wanting to feel comfortable and safe, be able to have fun, and yet the business model has to be based around something that in the can affect certain people in very negative ways. Yeah, and it becomes quite hard to well, it, it forces you to take a very hard line and very um, like. On the edge, there's there's no risk. Uh, there's a high risk of like getting it wrong. Yeah. With running events, it, it creates a very high, um, yeah, like yeah, risk is really the, is the is the word for it, which is really tough. Yeah. You know, because and isn't that the weirdest thing to have to balance? though? you shouldn't have to do that, right? As a what other? There's no other sort of cultural institutions that are around that have to navigate that kind of thing. That yeah. kind of balance to be able to do put on cool shit, you know. It's um, and I don't know a hundred percent what the answer. You know, <coughs> I'm not sitting here saying I have an answer to that yeah. problem, but I feel like that's a problem that you know, if you were going to sort of lobby government or council or any of these other organisations to say, you know, sort of help support the scene, that that would be a really good one to help kind of maybe un- figure out some longer term solution, which is okay. Maybe we can help these places do more without being so tied to selling booze. Yeah. yeah. Like but I always I always laugh when people t- talk about how New Zealand culture is so intertwined with alcohol and like well yeah of course like sport is really tied to alcohol. Yeah. Like yeah. sponsors and just the culture around it. Music is really tied to alcohol. So that's two like big societal spheres. Yeah. That are almost completely captured economically forced to you know be associated with alcohol just to survive you know there's a lot of and i'm not even just talking about you know in sport i'm not even just talking about like the big sponsorship stuff but like you just go to like a rural town's club rooms and the club stays afloat by selling beer over the bar at the club room to the Mm. to the traveling team and stuff like that each week you know it's we we it's it's a weird time to be in because everyone seems so much more economically literate and critical. Mm. Yet, 
aren't we're not challenging this idea of how economically captured some of our cultural spheres are yeah. by this thing, you know? Yeah. And it's it's um it's a it's a funny little segue, right? And I because uh, you and I have chatted a bit on the Twitters about this about you know this whole Web three area that's kind oh, of oh we're like, getting into it for sure yeah yeah, yeah 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 and that's and that's kind of why you know I'm well a I you know I don't I don't know what a solution is to that sort of question about you know the fact that alcohol is such a big piece of the business model for music venues but um, but I think that's an area that could definitely be worked on and and figured out somehow but the reason you know some of the reason that I started looking at some of the web three stuff that's kicking around now is you know because I think there's some interesting stuff over time that's going to come out of there and, and you know there's a lot of noise in that space and a lot <laughs> of hype and it's definitely um, it's a bit wild west at some in some places and also I think there's some really legit criticisms of um, things like NFTs and blockchain and yeah I think you and I ha- are actually on a, a, a very similar view of the whole thing which is like a fluctuation between like very exciting potential mm. and um and also reactions to like horrific or crazy uses of it now yeah yeah and and i think um for the music industry right there's a lot of valid criticism from artists and other because you kind of people are in two camps right they either think it's um really interesting space with a lot of potential and maybe it can disrupt the the status quo in a lot of really positive ways in the music scene or you're in the other camp which is to say it's just total snake oil and um you know it's bad for the environment and all these other you know there's a long list of very valid criticisms <laughs> yeah. of it and and you know you should just steer clear of it right and, and so and because it's a little bit of an area which is quite new and you know um changing quite fast actually you know and and also a little bit opaque if you're not a techo you know what i mean on it's, purpose yeah 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 and it's there's this kind of crypto bros kind of element to it all the cult yeah. side of it yeah. they're like yeah get banned if you don't just yeah. say this is the best thing ever. Kind yeah, of yeah, 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 yeah. You've got to have drunk the Kool Aid, and and you're going to be changing the world. And um, uh, you know, I think all of that is, is can be quite off putting to quite a big section mm. of creators, especially. I think you know, the, um, the music scene, but also just creators generally, artists. I think can be put off by that for sure. But I do think underneath all of that, though, there's some really, and you kind of got to dig a little bit. And I. Um, you know, when we first started chatting online about it, um, I was like, "Man, I don't really know anything about this space, but it feels like this might be something in here." And mm. and the only way to kind of understand it is to try and get in there and actually, you know, deep dive. Yeah, and kind of uh, learn by doing a little bit. So I was like, um, "I don't really know what an NFT is, but I think I better try and figure out how I might find one and maybe." buy one or you know hunt out some of these communities who are doing some interesting stuff on web3 and you know jump on some of the the discords and chat and just kind of try and figure it out by getting in there and i've done you know and i I definitely don't there's heaps that i don't know and i think there's a lot i've still got to figure out and i think there's a lot of valid stuff that's not quite working in the whole industry Mm. anyway for that at the moment but 
there's some really interesting stuff. Like I think there will be really interesting models will come out around um, community ownership by artists and creators and people who are. So f- um, I actually uh, one that you'd probably be interested. In actually, so I found a, a, a DAO online. So you, um, for anyone who's listening to this, you know, was it decentralized autonomous organizations? So yeah, this idea of sort of. Um, uh, you know, community owns organize sort of the organizations are owned by the community who are participating in them and actually they have an ownership stake in it and they get to decide on some of the direction around where things go and there's a process for managing that and they use all of these new sort of blockchain related technologies to kind of make that all happen under mm. the hood. Um, but is you know, I found a really interesting DAO that's coming out of London actually, which is about trying to set, uh, own and operate a um, network of nightclubs. Oh, under, wow. Under a DAO structure and actually what does that look like if it was actually, um, you know, the people who are actually working in that industry as like artists or DJs or promoters or event organisers or whatever and they're coming, you, you know, coming together and actually running this sort of autonomous um, consensual governance structure thing and shared ownership and what could we do in that space? And um, that's been really interesting. I, yeah, I've sort of had my toe in that one for a little while and just been learning and absorbing, really. Mm. Um, and I think there's a lot of really interesting... I saw another one uh, just recently, which... Because I think there's interesting funding models for the sector as well that could come out of this. So, you know, <clears throat> there's a lot of stuff um, in Web3 about you know, new platforms for artists to release music on and to be uh, rewarded a lot more fairly than what they might get if they're streaming on Spotify. Um, And so there's sort of those Web3 technology-based platforms and, you know, there's quite a few different ones out there now. There's, um, what's it, like a catalogue? I don't know if you've come across Um, catalogue. Yeah, I've seen there, yeah. Yeah, the one-of-one NFTs. Um, Audius is another one that's... Yeah, I've seen them as well. ...doing stuff. Um, Sound, XYZ. so there's lots of innovation in that that side of it, and I think there'll be some really interesting long-term stuff in there for um, you know how artists can be paid more fairly or you know have their work valued yeah. in a better way. Um, but then there's also uh, I came across one called Music Machines. Oh yeah, I've seen them. Yeah, that's really like I only just discovered them recently. I actually bought that's one I bought. Like I kind of I decided right I was going to get you know you kind of get a put your money where your mouth is totally. if, if you're going to learn about something I thought well I'll tell you what I'm going to put yeah three or four hundred bucks or whatever it is and go that's my professional development budget for me and I'm yeah, going to spend right. that I'm going to drop that on a few NFTs because the only way to learn about it will be to actually spend some money and just get in there so I bought one of the music machines ones just recently but if anyone who doesn't know that they're doing this NFT series which is around um uh, selling these NFTs, which are all sort of different variations of like you know uh, synthesizers and kind of drum machines and stuff that you, you sell as the artwork, and then the money for that then goes into funding uh, grants towards artists who are making music, and the people who have bought the NFTs get to vote on the submissions that artists put in, and they decide where the different grants go. And each each time they do an NFT release, they're putting more money in the tank for supporting musicians doing um, their stuff. And I guess for me, I was just like, well, you know what? Those are the models that are really interesting. Mm. And those are the ones like, you know, imagine if you could own a venue as a community and have a say in the music programming that it puts on or the artists that you book and support or, 
a certain percentage of profits goes to supporting the music community and, and funneling that profits back in. And and I think that kind of Web3 stuff is really interesting. I feel like there's something in that that will maybe not shake out for a, you know a couple of years and there will probably be a whole bunch of you know, a lot of noisy kind of hype stuff that will probably fall over and, you know, everyone will laugh about it in five years and go, remember that um, NFT startup that said they were going to do this? And mm. But it's kind of like uh, the the internet was probably, whatever it is, 15 or 20 years ago and Web 2.0 was all this thing and social networks were going to be everything. Right? And there <laughs> yeah. was a social network for, for almost all these different, anything you can imagine, there was a social network for it. A lot of those just dropped off and never went anywhere. But then there was still left some stuff at the end that was actually legitimately useful and people kind of clicked with it. And I think that's where the Web3 space will be. And I, th- I think music especially is really ripe f- to tap into that. I think mm. a lot of the innovation is going to be about, you know, how can you make uh, funding more sustainable for people? How can you make sure people are rewarded for the create uh, for the work they create in a better way than what they're getting at the moment through like the big streaming giants. And there's an in, and there's a uh, an entire disgruntled workforce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seemingly, and you know yeah. what I mean. Like the 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 producers or manufacturers of the product itself seem pretty um, upset and raucous in general compared to other yeah. eras. Yeah, and and I reckon as well. Like there's the thing I quite like about some of the Web3 things that I've seen that are actually really look like they've got some legs is they do the community thing really well. Like they're, you know, some of them are really obviously hyped snake oil. Like so. more, f- like there's the finance spectrum. Yeah, The yeah. speculative finance spectrum. The, the pyramid schemes. The pyramid schemes <laughs> and the rug pulls. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. That and like, it's... That's it, the bad side of it, right? That's yeah, the, it's yeah. like the, it's like, you know, when people... Ha- dislike bands but not for the music because of the fans of the band yeah you're like yeah. oh the, the people who like that band are just so fucking horrible yeah which makes you hate that band yeah like that's what a lot of that finance nft space is it's just like you guys are fucking so culty and so yeah. that's the worst part of it that's it's the, it, yeah. because hyper capitalist it's like we can now make money without in a sheer joke that none of us actually believe this has any other value than convincing other people it has value. Yeah. So yeah. it's, I was explaining it to a friend where it's like, which I was saying why it's exciting and also why I've been kind of telling people who have been asking me about it to like, should I be getting into this? And I'd be like, no, not right now. Yeah. Is because it's like the wild west, but the old wild west, there were like people just t- taking a chance to try and build a better life for themselves mm. and there were con men. Yeah. In this new Wild West, it seems like every everyone is a con man and the dynamic is, I believe I'm a better con man than you are and we all know this is a con, but I believe I'm just slightly better so I can con you out of your money before you con anyone else. Yeah. Yep. That's what a lot of that space, which is very different to a lot of the things you just mentioned. Although the one thing that they have in common is it's still so these, these music things like Audius and like catalog and all this stuff, they seem to have more of more potential, but it's still just potential at this stage. 
Yeah. And potential is just a kind of nicer way of us saying speculative. Yeah. So in some in some ways it's still as speculative, even though we can be like, I have a feeling that this is less speculative than that stuff or has something something to it. Yeah. It's it why I say don't get into it now is because as from three months of diving into it, I have yet to find something that seems concrete. I found a couple of things, mm. but these aren't global things. They they tend to be localized. Like one thing I found is um, it's called the ghost of Frank Jukes. I don't oh, know yeah. if you've come across no, this, but that's a great name. Frank yeah. Jukes was the was is a pseudonym of a producer, um, and he became extremely successful essentially rec- producing and recording his own samples and sample libraries that right. ha- okay. under under the name Kingsway mm-hmm. and some of the biggest hip hop producers Frank Ocean all these people would use his samples because they had this like je ne sais quoi about them that yeah, right. they could pull those yeah. and uh, he this year announced that he was retiring that he was done with that he was kind of over it Mm. And announced that he was gonna. He announced this new project called the Ghost of Frank Jukes. And what it is is it's like a generative. It's generative art based on his own drawings, and it's but it's developed with AI. Right. So it's not like here's seven um, different things that could be in your picture, and you get a mixture of them. Yeah. It's AI generated based. AI learning are based on his creative process. So it's as if this is what Frank Jukes might draw. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's cool. And and when you get one now, you are getting access to um, like community writing sessions and studio sessions and stuff like that in California. So there's no point me buying one because I'm not going to California. Mm. I won't be able to get that perk. But the other thing as well is that he's moved – He's, ta- he's, he's, he's done the same AI learning thing um, and had it learn, neural net learn and listen to his Kingsway um, recordings, which yeah. are like a, a huge library at this point. Yeah. And it is now producing little loops and beats based, uh, original mm. loops and beats, but based on this is what Frank Jukes would be making. See, that, that kind of stuff is pretty cool, right? And I think... Yeah. Um, you kind of hit the nail on the head because uh, the word, I was just trying to think of the right word when you were talking about it actually and it's sort of, I don't know if this is the right word but it's that idea of um, you don't want to be, like the things that aren't going to work are these NFT projects where you just touched on it right, where it's this crappy digital artwork where they've, um, you know, made them randomly uh, have different kind of unique attributes like the background is a different color yeah, on one, yeah, yeah. Or, you know one's got a nose that looks like this <laughs> like they're the worst and they're like terrible pieces of art as well and people look at them and they go man is people, you paid what for yeah. that piece of shit yeah. yeah those are the worst but they're the really speculative um that's the sort of the financial end of the pyramid scheme right where people are thinking they're going to buy those and because the whole sector is super hyped up that they're just going to make loads of money i'm going to sell that in like two weeks and i'm going to be this crypto you know boss owning the well <laughs> they're the worst and that's the stuff that a lot of people see because that's often the stuff that makes the news headlines is you know ridiculous prices paid for a picture of you know uh, ape or um you know um, yeah eight bit character or something right or beeple's yeah beeple's yeah. one back in the day yeah. yeah yeah and um but the real ones i think like and you 
is either things that help the ones that are, I think will go the distance are ones that either connect you as a fan more directly to the artist mm. in a way that you feel like you're part of this um, <clears throat> kind of uh, tribal community kind of thing you know and so mm. either it's stuff like you know getting access to perks like studio time or some kind of stuff like I saw this other one with Ron English you, ever, you know Ron English no. the, the pop cult pop art kind of um, guy out of, he, I think he's from the US but he, no, I'm a Philistine yeah uh, I, I've kind of I'd roughly heard it you would recognise some of his stuff he's got this he does the, uh, these really interesting kind of um, pop art sort of um, digs at um, you know major brands and stuff cool. you know, like um, Krispy Kreme and, and this kind of thing <laughs> right. in there yeah and they look they look pretty cool and they got that really kind of bright colourful kind of pop art kind of vibe to him and he's done a lot of big street art pieces and stuff over the years cool. he's been around for ages he's like in his, probably in his 60s or something and he did a limited uh, NFT thing of a whole lot of different sort of um, he, he kind of modelled everything on different light bulbs but they have um, cultural elements to them like there's right. a slash light bulb and there's a Charlie Brown one and there's all these kind of different things he's done and they're actual you know most some of them are sort of randomly generated but then every one in ten is like a really unique artwork that he's actually hand drawn and illustrated and it's and they you know they have real kind of mm. actual sort of value to them but the real value for that has been that he's created this whole community around it so if you have one of them then you plug into you know you get access to um, uh, limited um, print editions from him that he does just for that community. Uh, he does all these other kind of merch and sort of um, collectibles that uh, and stuff. And then he does, you know, uh, these one-on-one uh, -on -one kind of uh, sessions where you can talk direct to the artist on Twitter Spaces and or Discord mm. or whatever. So there's this kind of value to people over and above just buying some shitty digital piece of art. It's actually, hey, you're part of this tribe yeah. that is actually supporting and helping this artist. And in return for your support, you are getting this access to him. It's a little bit like Patreon, right? Where Patreon does that, but it's sort of in the Web3 yeah. kind of space. And I think that's the model for musicians and for artists that could be really interesting to see that evolve because I think those tools will actually open up a lot of revenue opportunities for people to make their art a more sustainable way of, of you know, that they can live off it and that it's a, yeah. a viable career path for them right is to be an artist to be a musician to be properly rewarded and then i think those kinds of things will then flow out like in a ripple effect to things like music venues and you know maybe art galleries or <coughs> museum uh, you know all these different things that have could be kind of upended with the way that they're funded and set up so that they're more community driven and more um, sustainable as they go forward, and that, yeah, and that, that's the stuff that I find really interesting because I just think the community aspect of like some of these ones that are doing really well is you just look at it and you go, man, this is super cool. And like even for me on this, um, so the the DAO that I've been looking at for the nightclubs is called the Willow Tree, okay. um, and I came across them through Accelerator Magazine, which I uh, online digital subscription for, and they've been pivoting themselves as, as a music mag to be more of a, um, you know, in the Web3 space and helping musicians and creatives understand this new sector. So they were talking about the Willow Tree and I was like, man, that looks kind of pretty interesting. I'll check that out. And then you go in, you know, and you jump into the Discord on that and then straight away it was plugged right into that crew and there's 
musicians in there and there's like it's a little bit like you know how Twitter can be like that sometimes where yeah. you kind of you have this direct connection to some people sometimes and actually especially big celebrities and that they will, you know you can kind of reply to someone on Twitter and then randomly like some big celebrity will actually reply to you one day by you know yeah by pure chance and you go I had a Twitter conversation with Holly Herndon about Web3 and yeah and yeah. that stuff and she was just messaging right back yeah and I mean Twitter can be a real cesspit right it can be the worst <laughs> and yeah Twitter is a good example of like the good and the bad, like in the way that Web3 can be good and bad as well. And um, Twitter can be a horrible kind of environment to be kind of ambushed by, you know, you know Donald Trump supporters on and anti-vaxxers and everything. But it can also be a really great way to just have this direct connection to people mm. and actually have them talking right back to you. And, and I've, I've felt a little bit of that in the... Um, in the stuff with the Web3 communities yeah, where you're kind of just removing all this noise and then all of a sudden you're actually talking to people who are doing some really cool shit and really uh, creative artists and musicians who are like really pushing out the, the boat in terms of um, what they're doing and you're like, man, I can actually connect right in with these people and talk to them and I think that's where the real power of that side can come through and imagine that moving into a bit more of a physical realm, right, where it's you know, um, you have a voice in, I'm uh, just using our example, right? A voice in what neck of the woods programs, right? You're part of that crew and you mm. can, you're talking direct to the team and you say, hey man, book, the, book these guys and do this and it kind of removes that friction. It's not that you can't do that anyway, but it's Yeah, harder. well that's what I was going to say because... It's just I, harder to do it, right? And it just makes it a bit easier. Right? Yeah, yeah, so I think the DAO thing is, is the exciting thing. I think NFTs mostly are speculative finance things and I think the ones that you and I find interesting we only find them interesting as access to the real interesting thing which is the DAOs and yeah. community organisations it's like a membership to or something kind of yeah. and and because yeah. I I have this um, community that I've been developing called it was uh, called Two Days yeah which we it was centred around making a track from scratch in 48 hours and then oh, putting, okay, putting yeah. those out as yeah. a compilation each year and then last year we started a little Discord community around it and started doing you know remix challenges and all these things and mm. this year it's I'm I decided I wanted to reorganize it away from how it started which was just based around this single compilation mm. to kind of ref, to a something a bit more broad and a bit more reflective yeah. of a community and it coincided with the same time I was really jumping into learning about blockchain and um, Web3 and all this stuff. And where I've kind of arrived from that and why I've decided to not include anything to do with blockchain and the reorganization or anything like that is purely because I, I've kind of... I, this is just speaking of me as of right now in the yep. year 2022 20, and where the technology is. But it feels like the exciting thing for me is actually the philosophy and the um, the ideas and the activism that this space is inspiring in people. The idea yeah. of coming together and building things where they all work together and it's about decentralizing and people being equal and people, um, you know, actually building communities again. And at this point in time, I actually don't see a reason why that has to be tied to the blockchain. And it doesn't. And it's it the, doesn't, yeah. yeah. And often, um, I think you've kind of hit it on the head, right? Because that's sort of what I've been learning as mm. well. I think eventually, depending how serious um, 
you know, these different groups are about how far they take it. You do get to a point where you go, okay, well, we will do it on yeah, whatever. Because we're so early as well. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's like less than 10,000 people in all these discords oh, yeah, most yeah, of the time. Like yeah. we're oh, And the best ones to be in are the ones where um, there's only a few hundred people. Yeah, right. Yeah, because – and it's actually uh, the thing – and this is for anyone actually who's ever – you know, whether you are an artist who's been kind of building a bit of a following or whether you're uh, a music venue or whether you're trying to set up some kind of community of any form, like you find like there's only, you might have a community say of 300 people, but the actual real contributors to that community, the people who are kind of the ones who are really giving it the heart and soul and driving it forward are probably like less than 10, right? Yeah, you right. Know, it's, it's, it's always... Some very passionate, a very small number of passionate people are the ones who are pushing it forward, and it, um, and that's not technology based, right? That's not about technology. That's just no. about building community. But for some way. reason, people have found that the technology has provided a has built a space for people to get excited and to get organized yeah. around these things. Like, yeah. you know, we, we, I would. It, of my ideas getting into the space I was like it would be great to have a like a collectively owned and funded record label very similar to like the music machines thing yeah which is like we just we 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 pull, put money together we pick artists we like we put them out and it's it's collectively owned decentralized we're yeah. all just voting on it instead of having a and r instead of a, we all just put for all fine artists who bring it in but there's also no reason that we couldn't do that as a co-op right now yeah. Without the blockchain as well. Yeah, and, and the interesting um, thing about a lot of this actually is because um, I'm, re- you know, you, you know, like I'm really interested in the DAO space as well mm. for all of the, all of the same reasons that you're talking about, and because I think it could be a really powerful way to organise people to do cool stuff in the creative space yeah. as we go forward. Um, but uh, a lot of it, like, because my day job um, back in the day was actually. I, I have a little bit of a technology background. I'm sort of not a like I'm not a technical person, but I've worked in software um, project management and product management over, over the years. I did a little bit of work at Serato and a bit at Melodics as well. I've, uh, you know, actually just Melodics and most recently actually. So I've sort of I'm reasonably technically um, aware. You know, like I don't have you know I'm quite comfortable around technology, probably more than your average person who's mm. in the music scene. But well. That's probably a bit of a uh, generalisation, actually. But, you know, I'm definitely in that more technically comfortable end of the spectrum. Mm. But a lot of the stuff that I've been seeing about DAOs and that is actually not, um, you know, anyone who's ever worked in agile software development or anything that's, like, about consensus uh, sort of driven governance and that. Like, none of this is new. It's just a different... Um, people are talking about a different way of building it. It's a bit like sneaky digital communism. Yeah, yeah, it is <laughs> sneaky digital communism. Yeah, and I... and. It's kind of a branding thing as well. Like everyone's interested in this idea of DAOs because it sounds like it's a really, it's attracting people because it's this hot sector and it's this cool kind of trend and everybody feels like it's going to be. Disrupted. And it's got that spiral of it's easy to, there's the sensationalist um, media for it, yeah, and the people for yeah. it, and there's sensationalist media against it and people against it, and they just get to feel like they're fighting a war on either side, yeah, and they just get to spiral and spiral and spiral, yeah. But a lot of the principles and the things that actually are happening are actually not tied to the technology at all. No, and in fact, no. they've been kicking around for ages, right? Mm. This whole thing about how you get a community to come together and, and 
own and do stuff, whether that's like a co-op. You know, there's lots of learnings from co-ops that are actually being applied in, yeah. in the DAO space. And it's definitely that kind of stuff I, f- I feel is really interesting. And whether, you know, whether it ultimately ends up being Web3 is a thing that you use to do some of this stuff, it probably doesn't matter, right? But if it's a catalyst to bring people together and say, hey, you know, we should run a record label differently or we should own a music venue differently or we should look at different ways of making us resilient and sustainable and able to build a scene that's healthy and vibrant and inclusive and all of these things, you know, that's that's a really good outcome. But whether or not you end up using blockchain or whatever the... Because, <laughs> yeah. you know let's face it, there'll be some other hype technology or whatever in the next five years and blockchain will be yesterday's news and it'll be something else. And But if the principles and the kind of that element of bringing a community together is actually meant that you can do something a bit new and think outside of the box maybe about how you do well, stuff. Well, music needs innovation. The, yeah. the industry. The industry has been... Uh, I've, I've said this over and over, but it's like why... Do bands still operate the same way as bands in the 1970s? Yeah, and but, and in so many areas, but not just bands, right? For the whole events, yeah, record whole, labels. We yep. we it's just yep. so venues, the whole lot. fucking yep. crazy. Yeah, it's so crazy to me yep. that it just hasn't. Yeah, it's just completely stagnated. Yeah, well, not completely stagnated, and like there are, you know, I do think there are like. Like things like electronic music, which I'm a huge fan of, mm. obviously, um, because it's so new and because it's performed and created in such a different context, that has started to do some interesting things in terms of creation or performance and this kind of stuff. But yeah, it's got to, there's got to be flow on effects and and changes for the entire industry. Yeah, um, that just there's it's there's just no excuse to have such a gap between artists and fans anymore especially when mm. most fans are artists yeah because music's been so democratized yeah and yeah. yet we still treat people as numbers and artists as artists even though they're interchangeable most of the time yeah it's crazy it's crazy to me yeah and you know if you think like if there's one good thing that could come out of covid right is that the fact that as an industry, we've been sidelined for such a long time by the <laughs> fact that everything's either been locked down or shut or, you know, we think we can open and then you've got to be shut again. Yeah, you know, it's forcing everyone to step back a little bit and go, okay, um, the status quo isn't helping me get out of this hole that we're in because of the pandemic. Maybe I need to be a little bit more open to some of these other new ideas. And, you know, I definitely think the whole Web3 space probably wouldn't be popping off the way it is, especially mm. in the music scene if a whole lot of artists and that hadn't been sidelined for the last 24 months with no income and no tours and no performing and all these things, no gigs, no live events, and they're like, okay, man, I have to do something or else I'm, I'm going to be boned here. And so then they're looking and, and it's kind of forcing you to, to try and be out, think outside of that box, be a bit more innovative. And I think mm. that could be the big thing that comes out of this is like maybe we will see some really interesting stuff come out that actually changes a bit of the music scene if you're a glass half full person like me which i am yeah. and i i think like there's a lot of desire for that to happen and ideas happening on the artist side of that and i just think we need to ask more or demand more or take over some of the institutional spaces to create 
some kind of innovative institution. Yeah. Like we only have, um, we only have status quo enforcing institutions. Yeah. And that really helps keep everything afloat, but it keeps everything afloat that's always been. You know, there's like mm. us having it. We talked before about this about um, funding for for this podcast. Yeah, which, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally right. That's and it. it's just that it's it's not anyone's. There's there's nothing cynical going on. There's nothing bad faith going on. What it is is it's just that we have a top down funding structure and a top down societal structure often that leaves that picks winners and leaves these huge gray areas where the innovation falls away and then if you don't support it at the grassroots then yeah. there's no pipeline for those people to do that new thing and try that new thing to gain support unless they're extremely lucky yeah or are willing to do it for free forever yeah um, which does happen also um and that's for for me. Once I started realizing that these huge gray areas, that you you get so much more support if you do the thing that everyone's done for fifty years. Mm. You'll get support if you want to write a song. You'll get support if you want to perform a song. Yeah. You'll get support if you're a record label that distributes music. Although streaming seems to have completely changed that idea of what dis distribution even means. Yeah. Yeah. And then we s sit around and wonder why we have the same bands playing at the festivals. Yeah. And we have the same you know, people in power and we have the same everything and everything over and over. It's because we don't structurally um, uh, incentivize innovation. Yeah. It's yeah. tough. And I think that that's where it needs to change is like, there's only so much you can ask of musicians and artists who in all, in a, in a fair and utopian world would just 100% of their time would be making the music because that's their skill. Yeah. There's only so much we can ask of them to be like, hey, can you also, you know, make great music, continue to make great music, but also be at the forefront of pushing the industry forward? Yeah, yeah. Get your head around I've, this Web3 space. Exactly. It would be really great if the industry yeah. did that part of the equation, you know, the industry part of the <laughs> equation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, and, I, and that's, you know, that's definitely the trick, right? It's going to yeah. be the challenge. I mean, it's hard enough when you think about... And if you're a musician or an artist and you're trying to, really what you want to do is just be focusing on your craft, right, and yeah. what you're doing. It's and fucking hard making good music. Yeah, and uh, but no, you've got to be able to now, you have to be across all the social media platforms to market yourself. You've got to be able to, um, you know, uh, be a, a marketing expert in about four or five different spheres. Yeah. And you've got to know also, then you've got to get wrapped your head around the latest thing, so Web3, right? You've got to go, oh, do I need to be doing something in the NFT space. Do I need to be doing this? Do I need to jump on catalog or do I need to? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll think about it between my one TikTok I need to make today. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. right, yeah. And you've got you've got to be across TikTok or something now because that's where all the kids are. Right? And uh, it's just, I mean, it's tough for anyone. But then when you try and say to someone who's a creative that, hey, we want you to be creative and we want you to, you know, make some great music or, or, or whatever your output is as an artist, but hey, at the same time, you have to do all of this and you've got to be able to 
look after yourself as you know a, a brand and as a business and as a um oh and also hey look after your mental health and well-being yeah and, and yeah make sure you have life balance in there too and, yeah uh, and uh, and we're not going to fund you or support you when uh, the pandemic hits and you're kind of all your gigs are cancelled for 24 months or something so and don't complain about it because you might put your industry chances at, at jeopardy because it's such a small yes yeah, yeah <laughs> that's right and if you get on the wrong side of that you know, soapbox right you kind of can get yeah so it's yeah, I, I'm. It, it's a challenge for artists, and I don't think artists should feel like they have to be the ones solving everything. And I think you know, there's, no. a, there's a part for uh, you know, you know, so, say for me as a venue owner, you know, there's a role that I have to play in that. There's a role for all of us who are in the industry, and I think you know, um, there's definitely a role for government. There's definitely a role for council. There's definitely a role for all of these industry organisations as well. But I think we should also not um, purely rely on them to be the... No, you know. you can rely on institutions to jump onto something that's already been proven to be effective. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah, you know, and you, low risk. Right? And low <laughs> risk. Yeah, yeah you yeah. have to... It's going to take some people doing, kind of putting their money where the mouth... Which is kind of what this podcast is, is in a way of like... Yeah. I yeah. keep there's there's guests that come on. And I, if we finish the conversation, I say you're great at this. You should really have your own podcast because you can get your message out. You can, mm. and I just think the more the merrier with yeah. this kind of thing in terms of communication and yeah. ideas. Um, and it just it's just there was that realization of like, well, if I I can't tell people to put their money where their mouth is to make change in the industry without doing some of that myself, you know. Yeah. But I think in everyone in their own way. If they, they, they kind of, I'm not just talking about artists, but I'm talking about people who are really involved in art. Like another another great person, like a couple of people that I really admire, like Anthony Metcalf and um, and Taylor from uh, Moral Support, yeah. who actually put their money where their mouth is and aren't, well, a- Anthony isn't a band, Taylor is not, but they put their money where their mouth is and actually put on these events and try and mm. push things forward. and. Yeah. And it's just going to take more brave people like that. Yeah. Now more than ever, I think, um, especially yeah. in the coming year, it's going to take a lot of bravery to, like uh, Anthony said to me once, uh, it was hard enough to sell tickets to a gig that definitely would happen. Yeah. Try sell tickets to a gig that might. Yeah. Yeah. And that takes bravery. Yeah. You know, and we just have to support those people and really boost up people who have slightly weird ideas or crazy ideas or mm. we have this propensity I, I feel this propensity in New Zealand to react to ideas with the small things that might not work about it yep. Um, yep. as opposed to what I've been trying to do is just do it and you'll find those small things as you, I don't need to point out to you because if it's good those small things will be solved as you do it yeah and we'll we'll all be better for it. And I think we just need a little bit more of that support, which is totally free to yeah. give. <laughs> and and you know, again, just to be positive about the pandemic in some ways, you know, I think the pandemic by putting us all in that same boat facing this big sort of overarching challenge of, you know, being closed down for the better part of two years as a as a scene. Well, if, well, actually, you know, we, obviously we had a good run in New Zealand actually when, uh, for, for a long time in the middle there, but it kind of feels like we've been shut down for the for almost two years. But, um, you know, is that it's removed all, 
that kind of common sense of us all being in the same boat, facing the same challenges, has meant that we're all much more willing to connect and be open and support each other. And like you talk about Anthony and you know Save Our Venues and uh, you know Sarah Models, another one who's doing really good stuff in mm-hmm. terms of getting the banging the drum on. What the only the only New Zealand music journalist? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, that's right. You posted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, it's um, well, she's a good example, right? Because she's just. Uh, she's passionate and motivated about the industry and she's like I'm going to get my voice in there as well and mm-hmm. I'm going to say what I think needs to be said and that you know and she's very articulate at how she, she talks about it as well so but we're all you know the, the barriers to us being uh, open and willing to support each other have been kind of removed and I think that's a really good thing that you know we want to make sure we yeah we've got a lot of challenges <laughs> yeah. as an industry but we can we can harness some really good stuff out of it, I think, and you know we're all a lot close, more closely <laughs> connected probably than we were two years ago. I think. Well, I think yeah. this is a good point to end it on. But before we end it, to ask you, what maybe not right now, but in the coming days, weeks, months, what can someone who wants to support a venue like Neck of the Woods, what can they be doing now in, in days' time or in weeks' time or a month's time to help support Nick of the Woods? Ooh, that's a, that's a great, that is a good question. Mm. Um, so a tricky one, uh, so there's probably a couple of things. One I think is um, while we're at Red still and venues are really constrained around how they can operate, um, I think amplifying and supporting message, you know, uh, Chloe Swarbrick's been a great advocate for us, obviously, as our Auckland Central MP. Shout out, Chloe. Yeah, she did that open um, letter to government that's just gone out today. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen that yet, but... um, Oh, no, I haven't seen that yet. Yeah, uh, countersign... Not not Jasmine's one, a new one. uh, One one from Chloe Direct, which is uh, a bit countersigned by a bunch of... um, uh, music venue, Auckland music venues on, through Save Our Venues and also hospitality operators as well. Mm. Actually, we're talking about that generally. But so that that kind of supporting and amplifying that that messaging that and being aware that you know um, the industry is still doing it pretty tough at Red and that any opportunity to kind of make sure that message is getting through to government in terms of being open to how they might support people through that is really important. And then I think more generally. You know, with a hopefully a bit more of a positive hat on, right? Is that you know, hopefully the Omicron surge when it hits us will be short and sharp, and then hopefully post that we'll get back to a little bit more normality and hopefully back to orange. Um, that people are, are, are kind of there to support and and go out and you know support the scene and go to gigs and support bands and support your local artists and support your venues and uh, because I think you know. Uh, there's going to be a period where it's possibly a little bit tricky for some people where, you know, you're used to kind of, we've had so long of not necessarily going out as often as we (laughs) used to or perhaps maybe being a little bit wary about possibly going to, you know, a big gig with a lot of people in a confined space. Um, Some people won't care about that. You know, some people will be like, man, I'm into it, let's go. Mm -hmm. We're, We're back on. But other people, you know, will still have some reservations and I think being aware that, you know, um, that support will be really important as we transition out and obviously you want people to feel comfortable and safe when they're sort of coming back out and getting yeah. on the scene again But and I think you know it's fair to say like pretty much everyone 
I deal with in the venue side, whether it's Whammy or anyone like that, you know, take a very, you know, um, take an approach to kind of looking after people and keeping them safe pretty seriously. And, you know, where the venues really haven't kind of opened at Red or we've kind of kept our trading fairly minimal and it's definitely been about keeping people safe. So I think when we are able to open and when we're able to have gigs on again in a, in a good way, um, having that support from people being willing to come out and and get back on the scene with us will be really important. Yeah. And I think hopefully in a, as we get later into 2022, this will start to fade a little bit and with a bit of luck there won't be any more unexpected COVID variants and you know the benefits of a highly vaccinated population and all that will kind of kick in and hopefully some more normality will come in and the borders will reopen and we'll have more international touring and all of these yeah. good things that we've missed but um, yeah definitely people just being ready to kind of swing back in I think is going to be a big thing be brave be brave that's right <laughs> be, be brave yeah well thank you so much for being on Jonah that's awesome man thank you for it having was, me yeah good <laughs> I'm glad. Uh, I'm sure. We'll, I'm sure I'll get a, a little bit of hate mail about us saying anything other than bad things about NFT. But I fucking love it. I thrive on it. Come at me. We'll bring you on. I think it's a really healthy debate, right? I think. Like, don't get me wrong. I think there are a lot of things that people are saying about NFTs that are right on the money in terms of criticism. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but also, um, you don't want to throw. Oh man, you know, use that old terrible saying like, "Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater," right? Yeah, totally. There's there's something in there that I think done in the right way addressing a lot of these criticisms people valid criticisms people have discounting all the snake oil salesmen and the pyramid schemes and the rug pulls and the speculators yeah. out there it's definitely wild west it's probably a long way from being perfect yet but don't yeah don't discount the fact that there's something in there that can address those legitimate concerns yeah could be some really interesting ways for people to be well rewarded for for being in the creative sector, yeah. Definitely, and uh, go to OpenSea right now and find the Harko Meets Humans NFT. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. To the moon, yeah. baby, to the moon! <laughs> <laughs>